Dr. Koontz, I usually ask you these nonplus questions at the start of a show just to make you laugh <laughs> and get us off on the right foot. But yeah. honestly, as I've gone back to like attempting to develop my own first principles since 2020 COVID event and struggling to believe that or wanting to believe, not believing that the modern assumption it, that things have changed is the one thing that's the big lie, that there hasn't been this big of a change. That technology is as much of a myth as it is anything that is really like a global god uh, that's really going to help us or kill us. Uh, it's more devices man has developed to convince himself that he is God. But yeah. in all of this, trying to figure out like the future. So then like once I know my first principles about what the world really is that I live in, which involves bringing my cosmology back to Genesis and uh, things like that. But yeah. You know, I've asked questions like, is the world flat? And we're going to get to the moon at some point. Like, did we? That's the question. And we'll get to that question (laughs) at some point. But the one that like bothers me that I can't give myself an honest to God, yes or no answer on. And I'd really like to say no. I really want the answer to be no. But I just, I don't know now. And that is, so here it is, is a bona fide zombie apocalypse possible? Uh, No. I like and, this answer, but you got to convince me still. <laughs> yeah, the the reason the reason no is that the strictly speaking the myth of zombies. So, its origins in Haitian vodou involve I think a combination of confusion about burial and also what I see an area that I think we've talked way too little about in the church and this we got we really got slammed with this in COVID is superstition. Correct. Yeah. And so I think it concerns superstitions about witchcraft, not saying that witchcraft is unreal, but saying that there can be superstitions even about evil things that are real. You can be too scared of something. And the myth of zombies and then its propagation, especially since the 1960s and 70s through Hollywood, which I'm not I'm not your guy to talk about why that might be, but it's something that I know has occurred. That myth is based on superstition about the capacities of human beings to control the world and living beings within the world. That's really interesting. I'm writing down the words pirate and ninja as things that have arisen at the same time in pop culture with the zombie. Also both, if you look at them, a belief in human ability to control yeah. and manipulate the world. Right. Fascinating, fascinating. Right, right. And so that that's part of my thinking about whether we're going through something totally unprecedented because of technology or something is I think that that is part of our mythos and part of our superstition. We think about technology and science the same way that witch doctors are thought of in what are called within religious studies, African traditional religions, which would include Vodou in Haiti. And the, the problem there, the slippage is always to attribute to the expert or that's in our case, or the priest or witch, or whatever term malignant or benevolent you want to use, you attribute to the expert, and he probably attributes to himself, way more control and power than he actually has. Obviously, that's advantageous to him to be believed to be uh, better even at his evil than he is. And I think that's the mistake in the myth of you know slaves being made out of the dead, um, such that they become not living, but undead. And it's also the myth of a lot of scientific control over modern societies. And I think the thing that you can see is that this doesn't mean that they actually attain control, right? Because their story, I mean, this is like a familiar COVID thing, their story about how things should be controlled or how their advices or incantations should be used will vary from place to place and time to time. The issue is always that they have control. And so I think the profitable thing, if you go back and you look at, say, and this is, a, this is a little hard with African traditional religions because so much is oral. But if you go back and you find, usually like ethnographies are most helpful on this, descriptions of witchcraft, right? What you're going to find is the issue is not so much that it's real or, or that the anthropologist, my favorite here is E.E. E. Evans Pritchard, who did a lot of work in, Central Africa, not the Republic, but the region. It's not that he believes in it, but the forms of control that it exercises over the minds of the believers 
are real. And this is very much the case with <laughs> double masking and yeah, yeah, wiping yeah. So, everything down. So, so yeah. the weak-minded, TV-fed barbarian who's going to rage without reason, led by his emotions only, living on chopped up bites of information fed by a magic tube in the in the sky. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Tell me the difference. At the same time, I do have to say, to go back to yeah. my original question, which I still consider one of the unanswerable things in my struggle to futurist my next 30 years, like, I'm not thinking juju. Right? I get that, I get that like the zombie comes out of mythology and juju. But most of like pop zombieism now is largely like either a viral mistake and or some side of, sort of scientifically engineered mistake. And yeah. that's where I just can't put it out of my head that it's possible we so mess with the human genome trying to fix it yeah. that we actually make some people who are rage machine death addicts who just go and eat people. And if that happens, I'm not sure what to do as a pastor. So... That's why I want to know if it's possible, <laughs> right? It's not about magic. It actually is about science. But then you've said science is magic, and I'm with you on that one. I'm totally with you on that one. So, yeah. like, we are playing with smoke and mirrors a lot of the time here. Yeah, right, exactly. And even the inability of the Senate Democrats or the People's Republic of China to be firmly against human-animal hybrids <laughs> is, is I, I, think, I, I think the purpose of that is far more mundane. I mean, disgusting, but mundane than zombies. I think the purpose is not bioweapon soldiers. I'm sure that's somebody's purpose. But I think what they are going to try to achieve are being able to harvest certain kinds of productive cells for regenerative medicine. Right, right. It's always about staying alive right. longer. Yeah, right. I mean, even when you want the super soldiers just to protect you from someone else's super soldier, I think. Right, because I don't, I don't think that their actual quest for material resurrection will be successful. And I think that at least some of them know that or or could admit that to themselves. Well, speaking of quests for material resurrection, colonial New England, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. But, but that's not the real dovetail. I like the dovetail we went with before of the weak-minded TV-fed barbarian yeah. who is something of a zombie. And the more you read and don't watch TV, the more this should become fairly evident to you. It's right. It's not... You're not being a snob. It's just true. No. And that concerns degeneration really over time in something that has now become a proverbial measure of idiocy, which is to say, I went to public school, which I went to public school. So I'm an idiot too. And what we're going to look at over the next two episodes, and it'll be the beginning of kind of a bigger series on the history of education in America, capturing different kinds and different levels. I'm going to not talk about what's now called early childhood education because it's such a post-1960s phenomenon. We'll be able to capture it when I talk about homeschooling, for instance. And we'll talk about the notion of compulsory education in these next two episodes. So (laughs) we'll cover a lot of what that's for. So we'll leave demothering for later. Yeah, (laughs) demothering. But the notion that public school is worthy of two entire weeks is simply because I think it is the closest thing and it has its own historical evolution we'll look at, but I think it's the closest thing that America has or has ever had to something like a state religion. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, you've talked about it being the concentration camp before, which I think is helpful. (laughs) I mean, having been to one myself, I was, I was private school to eighth grade and then Grossmont Foothillers, La Mesa, California, um, all the way through high school. So, um, I want to give a caveat to the listener out here. If you if you aren't listening to my other stuff, I got super sick, so my voice ain't doing so good. I will do everything I can to make sure I don't make unfortunate noises in the microphone today. But our, our good man Brian, he'll clip what he can find. If something like that slips through, like you're just gonna have to live, right? But we're gonna we're gonna try to keep me quiet and Koontz going as we <laughs> dig into the public de-education and religification of modernism's American zeitgeist. Here we yeah. go. Colonial yeah. New England origins is where we got to start. Yeah, because when you're talking about public school, what you're really talking about is the export from colonial New England of its way of schooling the young to eventually the entirety of the country. And so what what you're looking at is the fact that because America has always been, let's say, multinational, going with the idea of multiple American nations that Colin Woodard has popularized, 
because America was always multinational, those different American nations, however many you think there were, did not actually, they were not actually constituted in the same way. And there are a couple of things that are unique about colonial New England that make American public education what it is. Colonial New England, for instance, is easily on both racial and ethnic measures, the most homogeneous part of the colonial United States. Easily. It's also by some other measures, even economic, perhaps the most homogeneous and egalitarian. It has the largest number of freeholders. It's got voting in having local democracy that's actually effective and engaged in by the populace, both in the town, which is kind of the the place that decisions about everything from roads to schools are made, and in the church. So it's homogeneous in a way that no other part of the United States or future United States ever was. It's also religiously relatively uniform. Now, there are always going to be, uh, sometimes under penalty of law, things like Baptists, especially in Rhode Island, but even in state church places like Massachusetts and Connecticut. Baptists, there are Quakers. Eventually there are, and even before the advent of widespread public schooling, there are Unitarians. But those Baptists, Quakers, and Unitarians are still themselves raised within the same society, practicing the same trades and professions, going to the same schools. Congregationalists and Unitarians are still going to go to Harvard, even after the church is disestablished in Massachusetts and the congregations split from each other. So, I mean, something to understand about colonial New England is that it is, un it is uniquely uniform in almost any way that you could think of, which is going to make the export of its way of educating the young, schooling the young, let's say more specifically, unusual and I think hard to map. And that's going to be a lot of the complicated legal history that we're going to be tracing over the next couple of weeks because you tr you take something that it, that arose in an almost entirely homogeneous society and you try to map it onto a country and even other regions before that country exists that aren't at all the same. Different languages, different ethnicities, different races, some of which are thought of as citizens, some of which in the case of like Indians and Blacks are not thought of as citizens by most Americans. So you're taking something that I think maybe worked, maybe could be supported locally and unanimously. And you're trying to make, eventually make everyone else have it. How does the homogeneity of colonial New England track today? Has it stayed that way? No. So you're going to get, you know, it's New England, so everything's kind of close together. Take a look at if you drive through a place like Connecticut, compare the names on the mailboxes to the names and say rural Maine. There are still parts of New England that reflect what you could think of as sort of colonial stock. New Englanders, those are going to be more rural, you know, more Western Massachusetts than, than Eastern Massachusetts, more Maine than Connecticut. But by the end of the 19th century, there are lots and lots of immigrants, generally Catholic immigrants in New England. And so that homogeneity is, is gone by the early 20th century. And eventually, the, probably the, the place that if you want to meet the most people of colonial New England stock reliably outside isolated pockets of rural Maine or, or upstate New York, you'd have to go to Utah so um, because the, ask, Mormons, the Mormons yeah, are of similar, like that. similar can stock. Can I ask then, in that regard, uh, are they, they largely are not reflected in the voter base so far as national politics are concerned then? What do you mean, what do you mean well, by what that? What I mean is that the cities rule. That's what I mean. So Yeah, this, the cities do rule, but... Even in the case of, and this is something, um, I'm looking into something we'll do months from now, um, but this is something that even in voting patterns on, on certain moral questions like euthanasia, a place that is very Yankee, that, 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 it's, that its white population could be defined as a lot more Yankee than say Oklahoma or Georgia or Arizona, places like Oregon or Vermont, is that even Vermont, which barely has cities of any size, the population is still fairly, let's say, left wing <laughs> on certain questions. And But one thing that I can find that is a commonality between kind of left wing Oregonians 
who are probably pioneer descendants, left-wing Vermonters and right-wing people in Utah, is that they tend to be fairly moralistic. And that's something you're going to see in the history of public school, is that if something is right, then it's not just right for them. It is right for everybody. Everybody, everybody, yeah. everybody. Yeah. So this goes <laughs> back to a time when right and wrong and that thought in the public was something that always was for everybody. And we've only torn that down maybe a bit recently, right? I mean, yeah. the idea that there was a God and that there were these 10 things you shouldn't do more or less, eh, most people were kind of ruled by that at least. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that change is, is massive and happens to everyone and, and all populations, all ethnicities in the United States. I think it's, it's partly why the 1960s figure so largely in so many conservative Americans' imagination. Hmm. But the roots of a lot of our difficulties lie much deeper than that. And in this case, I think that part of the difficulty lies in New England trying to map its ways onto the rest of the country. I don't know. I just wrote down this the Smurfs. It's all about the Smurfs. They did it to us. That's what it was. <laughs> well, we'll go with your theory because you got, you're prepared to talk on it. So <laughs> take it from there. Yeah. This doesn't mean, however, that they have figured out a particular way of doing things because not only their congregations are governed locally, but also their schools. So, so what are they mapping? I mean, you say they're mapping it onto yeah. the nation. What are they what mapping? They're, what they're mapping is the idea that in a given place, it's going to be called a town in New England. Eventually, once there is a public school system in the South, it's going to be run at the county level. But it's some jurisdiction of representative democracy, some level of government all the way up to in Hawaii. It's actually there's a single state school board. Wow. At some level, the citizens are going to provide schools to which anyone could go. And this is not actually normal in early America, not, not just normal, colonial, like in history but or anywhere, right? It's like super abnormal. It, isn't it? It's, it, it's, a, it's a little abnormal. It's a little abnormal. Anywhere that had a reformation is probably going to have someone who had some inkling that there should be provision for what I think more neutrally are and earlier are called common schools. That is no matter how much income your father has, or no matter what you're intended to do in life, there will be a school that you can go to for a certain amount of time to learn certain basics. Right. Usually communicated and certainly in colonial New England communicated through religious instruction. So you're going to learn how to read and write by reading and writing things that are the Bible or that reflect Bible doctrine, right? So if you go and you look at some of the earliest books printed in the colonies, they're going to give you basic Calvinist theology because they're intended for little Calvinist children in colonial New England who are going to learn to read by reading the Bible. And you mentioned so the Quakers idea that, in this too. Are Quakers, Quakers are part of that same equation? Quakers... Um, I'm just curious how they interface with the Bible. I'm just silly. Damn yeah, uh, they do. They do interface with the Bible. They don't. They don't provide for. And the Quakers are much more a mid-Atlantic thing. Pennsylvania and New Jersey, oh, especially. Okay. okay. Quakers. Quakers do not have the same thoroughgoing interest in schools. Quakers are doing something, and I'll talk about this in the homeschooling episode. Quakers are much more commonly doing something that we would now call homeschooling. Okay, so this is the Unitarians and the Baptists then mostly? Unit congregationalists, oh, congregationalists. Okay. at first, and then later uh, some of them will become Unitarians. But the issue is that in a town uh, which has a meeting and has a church and has a minister who may or may not also be the school teacher, but in a town, in, in any given place, there is a school provided at the expense of the citizenry for the upbringing of the young so that they can learn certain basics above all the Bible and Christian doctrine. And by public, what was meant then? Freely available? Yeah, public public did not mean that it was non-religious. It meant that it was open to you regardless of income, because by contrast, the other two forms of non, let's say, college schooling available are respectively homeschooling, which is pretty common. A lot of like Jonathan Edwards, for instance, who's you don't get more colonial New England than Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is effectively homeschooled. Okay. And that's very common. And that's really no different from England at the time, the mother country. 
And then in addition to that, and this goes into the early American, early Republican period, you have what are called academies. And this will actually endure until like the advent of the high school at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, because an academy has no specific grading. Grades aren't really a big like first, second, third grade. Graded schools are not all that normal, but an academy could take you all the way up to you can go there and prepare to get into Yale or Harvard or Princeton, or you can study with a private tutor. And that's often where you'll see in the life of somebody he's he's schooled in the I village I'm school. I'm so confused. How are they going to go to Harvard if they haven't been in first grade, man? I don't get it. Right. How, how's yeah, it there's possible? No, it can't work. There's no, there's no grades. There are what they what they have instead of grades are evaluations by the tutor or the teacher in the case of where a school or an academy exists. And then also you have entrance exams and you can look at like, you can actually find online like the Harvard entrance exam from like the 1880s. And I think unless you have a PhD in classics, you're not going to pass it. Yeah. So my tongue is firmly in cheek that entire time. I hope that that was kind of clear. No, I get it. Modern modern educational theory, more or less, uh, would assume that this just had to be chaos and nothing could possibly work. These kids had to be stupid. And it's amazing we lived through it. Yeah. Well, I think one thing to notice is that early on, and I'm just talking about New England here because it's their system that's really going to be exported. Early on, everything is locally assessed, locally dealt with, And the only way that you get beyond a local level, either to get a better tutor or to go to an academy, let's say 30 miles away, if it's not the school that you're being raised in, is going to be because of interpersonal connections, which are which are numerous, which are absolutely numerous, especially among the clergy who are really the elite in every way of colonial New England. Nonetheless, what you're dealing with is a system that is not intended to train you to leave home, you know? So if you're part of the reason that you have incredibly high literacy rates in, in new England, far beyond any other region of the United States, not just colonial times, but the United States is because the kid whose father is a tobacco farmer in the Connecticut river Valley, which, which is possible. He's not sending his kid to school so that his kid can, let's say, have a career or make a certain amount of money. There's a theological aspect to sending him to school because the school is really where he's going to be trained to know and honor God in a way that Catholics or Lutherans are going to identify with a parochial school. The public school does that in colonial New England, and it's intended to. Simultaneously, the practical aspect is for life, what he really needs to be able to do is to express himself well, to understand print, well, to read well, and also to do arithmetic very quickly, which is why memorization is going to be so important. And I'll talk a little bit later about what the curriculum often looks like when we talk especially about America, not just colonial days. But the aspirations here are theological or locally practical. The school is not intended to advance you up a career ladder and then you take yeah, a test yeah. or you talk to the guidance counselor. I think I'm, I mean, I think I'm comfortable hearing that as philosophical. I mean, I agree with the theological, but that there, there is a philosophy involved as opposed to a pragmatism and certainly as opposed to a progressive pragmatism. Uh, there right. is a pursuit of a higher good underneath the belief in a wider we, which for them absolutely involve God. And I think should, right. if you're paying attention to nature, but to be right. fair, you know, it doesn't have to be theological in even the Lutheran narrow sense of the term. While I got the floor, yeah, more on public, just the mm-hmm. kind of thinking about the, the root of that word yeah. is publish or like publicity. And I love this because today it really makes sense. Like you're going to send your kids to the publicity school. As long as you know what you're doing, they're getting the publicity of the American government shoved down their throats. That's what it is. Also, interestingly, as a tie, the word publican or tax collector is, is pulled to that same root. So... Public, not meaning always what it means, I guess, is a thing. And, and seeing the roots in it being a place that is sharing information, uh, but then also information which is tied to the state very quickly um, and even maybe deeply within, like, say, the, the New Testament concept of the language. I, I, think, I think that it, it is tied to government. It is not tied, certainly not in colonial times and not in early America, it's, it's not tied to any form of government beyond the local mm-hmm. that, and that's I'm not, not sure. really, 
that's not that's not by someone's design. There simply are there there simply is no thought, not even in New England, that any entity above a local entity, which would be a confluence between the town and the congregation, which are at least at first and by design the same thing, really. But but there couldn't be because there's no like, regular quick communication happening. They're they're across a giant patch of water from most stuff. You know, even as they're expanding and growing the isolation level of this area. So it makes sense as a natural occurrence that it would be local things. But then you're going to advocate, and I agree with you, that that also we can see in hindsight was better. It was, it was the way it worked. Well, I think I think that what what I'm saying is it's it's not even colonial. It's not even regional. Right. So one town in Connecticut right. and the next town in Connecticut don't have the same teacher, don't have the same curriculum don't have the same articulation in, say, any of the numerous theological debates that happen in early New England, because the local authorities, which are sort of like the elders of congregation and of town, and probably also in age, literally, the elders don't want that. So that is potentially anarchic for the constitution of the church and the state, because you have no idea what you're getting in the rising generation. And you, what you will definitely get is what you do get in New England history, which is virulent and constant theological debate about things that are very hard even for theologically informed people to understand at this point, right? Like, how do I articulate the total depravity of man, right? Mm. Um, like this specifically? Can, with that's, or without that, adverbs? That, that's right. That's, that's, that's one example, you know, and then this can get ministers fired and congregations split and lots of other things. Sounds like a beloved synod. Yeah. Right. And so that, that, that way, but the idea, the basic idea that every child should not compulsorily, but freely be, be schooled is a basic new England idea running out of things that I think are very particular to its understanding of itself. <laughs> and especially I think the the deep interconnection between what I learn in school and what I believe about everything. So who are Horace Mann and Henry Barnard? They are respectively from Massachusetts and Connecticut. And they're taking us into the early American Republic where there still are not, as we would think of them now, school systems. That is, there's nobody above a local level who says, this is what you ought to do, let alone says, this is what you have to do. Now, by early American times, a New England model of public schooling has been written into, at least land has been reserved for it, in all of the, quote, Northwestern states by virtue of the Northwest Ordinance in the 1780s, (laughs) meaning all that land in Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota, that's all, some of that, Michigan, some of that is has to be set aside for a school. Even the way that the land is platted out reflects New England's influence in addition to the prohibition of slavery in the Northwest Territory. So what you're getting is the potential and what you see and say, a good example of this would be, a lot of the listeners will be familiar with Little House on the Prairie, right? The schools in those books, and especially in the second book, Farmer Boy, which takes place not in New England, but in upstate New York, which is kind of, which really is still to some extent an extension of New England. It's kind of greater New England. You can see the way that school functions and what is happening is always local. It's so local, in fact, that there isn't even necessarily anywhere for the teacher to live. But as teachers circulate between schools, which have non-overlapping and sometimes very much overlapping school sessions, because it's up to you and it's up to the local people how often and for how long your kid goes to school, the teacher can move around and the teacher can be kicked out by sort of local social pressure or the big boys beating him up. None of it is standardized, but there is an idea which has by that time spread in the let's say first several decades of the 19th century, that there are public schools. This is almost entirely a Northern thing. And it's a majority greater New England thing, anywhere that Yankees live or emigrated to, but it's there. What Horace Mann and Henry Barnard are going to do, and and most of all Horace Mann is going to do, is on the basis of especially Mann's study 
of the Prussian school system and its capacity to train teachers and its capacity to provide schooling for every child, Horace Mann will become, in, in an official sense, uh, the first executive secretary of education for the state of, for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But in an unofficial sense, what he will become is the father of public schooling in anything like the systematic fashion that we know it, because he's going to be able to articulate why this must be, okay? And the why that man articulates, and Barnard is another implementer of this in Connecticut, the why that man articulates is because you cannot maintain a republic without a well-schooled populace. And this has, you know, this is definitely the case, and this certainly in the sense of adult literacy and capacity for public debate. I mean, go read a newspaper from like 19th century New Hampshire, you know, just, just read a, just read a description of a debate about mesmerism. That was something that they debated a lot. You're going to have trouble with some of the words, but these things were mailed out to farmers. <laughs> so, so they, they were achieving something. So, I, mean, yeah, I don't is, wanna, I want to, I want to poke yeah. in my, my, this is my yeah. beef actually is like, Wow. I mean, based on our standards, it must have been chaos. Like no one could have learned to read. They would have been starving <laughs> yeah, and sick. Right. Their teeth would probably fall. Thank God, like Disneyland came along. Otherwise, right. what would have happened to the world, right? Yeah. But the alternative is the reality. These people knew their beef straight up every which way. Yeah. And, and, and we don't. And this path of public schooling being what it was and ceasing to be what it was is right. a big pill in us getting changed into the, the modern zombies that we are. Yeah, yeah. And I think that something to recognize is that there is a, a combination which cannot be, you, you cannot unravel this. It's not like a threefold cord and I can pull the three cords apart. There's a combination in man of the theological, the ideological and the practical. The theological being the basic knowledge of God. Now, Man is himself theologically not all that orthodox. So that is part of why public school is generally by the 19th century where it exists. And it's, it's increasingly, it, it's still called largely common school, but the term public is catching on more in the 19th century. Then in the public or common school, you're going to read the Bible, but you won't, for instance, in all likelihood anymore, have a catechism. Okay, and that's a big deal because the Westminster Shorter Catechism and concomitant versions of it in different places is is really colonial New England's catechism, and that's gone, right? So now we're we're reading the Bible and we're we're praying the Lord's Prayer. That's actually that's a lot less theological information than you than you're getting in the 18th, certainly than in the 17th century. Well, and can I say I don't know if it's yeah. like, I'm I'm going to beef like an LCMS man would over the theological word, but it's a lot less philosophical information. It's a lot less debatable information in the sense of um, providing a common way to have debates about mm -hmm. narrow issues. You're widening yeah. the playing field. Yeah. Yeah, you are. And so the arguments that are going to occur about the Bible, and these are still going to occur in the 20th century. And uh, eventually they will be the reason that you can't read the Bible anymore after 1963 in a public school. But there are in, not not just in New England, but you know, cities especially are going to have public schools, even in the South sometimes. But there are part of Catholic Protestant riots in Philadelphia in the 1840s are going to be over which version of the Bible is read in the public school, because there are Catholic schools, but Catholic kids also attend public schools. So, do we read the Do I Rem, you know, English translation, Catholic translation, or do we read what we now call the King James version? So theologically, the Bible is going to be read. There are going to be prayers. They're going to be as non-sectarian, which as I've stressed many times with like the concept of religious liter liberty, non-sectarian doesn't mean non-Christian. It means non-specifically Protestant. So you're not making a decision among Protestant confessions. That's the idea. So if you have a frontier settlement in Illinois and it's you know, it's so, it's so many Baptists and so many Methodists and so many Congregationalists, you can still all have a school teacher because he's not going to be propagating Methodism to your Baptist or your Congregationalist children. Uh, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so that's, they're, they're, not, they're yeah. not, they're not miles apart from each other either in, in the end of the day compared to where we are now. 
I mean, really. Yeah, just, not, no, it, it no, I mean. like what they're doing is the Congregationalists convinced the Methodists and Baptists to practice Congregationalism with them, and they did. <laughs> and that's what they got. It doesn't sound, well, I mean, call me nuts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, uh, the, the, there's something, there's something here, and this is, I think, part of the, let's move into the ideology in this way, is that the ideology is that there will be a national American identity. Right. Which will be propagated through common schools or public schools. Publicity, like I was saying. And so, yeah. And so, and so that will go along with this non-specific Protestantism. And it will mean that we are fused together as a nation. Now, something to recognize about this is this is a very New England thing. A certain articulation of nationalism, which just ends up sounding very Yankee. Uh, is a very New England thing. Now, the thing that I I don't, and these are this is like half of all my forebears, so I'm not I'm not knocking them in this, and I want to congratulate them in the, in this specific way, is that they are far more energetic than any other American group in putting forth their ideas as normal and standard, and they find institutions and means to do so. Okay, so there are Yankee institutions that give books to public schools that make sure that American standard uh, spelling is becomes to be standard. That's Noah Webster that propagate a dictionary of American English. That's Noah Webster too. They have institutions like the American Home Missionary Society that send not only Congregationalist missionaries, but also school teachers to the West, to the Midwest, and after Reconstruction to the South. The thing to recognize is that the story of public schooling, especially in its first 100 years, is a story about people who have a definite idea, not only theologically, nonspecific as it is, but also ideologically, that, that being American, for instance, means beginning with Columbus and ending with Washington, and saying that Washington's intention was to be the father of a country, not of a bunch of loosely federated states, Okay. All of these things are kind of, they are very theologically and politically debatable. But if you put them forth and you have some energy, you can accomplish things out of all proportion to, in the case of the Yankees, their proportion to the population or the quality of farmland that they had in New England, or really a lot of other adverse factors. So after, I'll talk about the practical thing in a second, but I think the ideological component of man's vision of school systems, usually administered by states organizing local schools, organizing public schools so that they they train teachers. So they have normal schools later called teachers colleges. This is also an innovation of New England. Those things are very debatable. Okay. Should Americans have a national identity? Do we have, isn't it enough to be a Virginian? Very debatable, <laughs> but because they have energy and because they're always literally on the frontier saying and doing these things. I mean, they're the first people to send missionaries to Oregon, for instance, and they, they found a school there uh, with Marcus Whitman. Because they do that, they accomplish way more than people like Thomas Jefferson, who have amazing ideas also about public education, but don't put them into practice. Hmm. And no one ever said the Yankees weren't confident. I mean, that, that, uh, no, 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 I mean, know, that isn't the problem there. <laughs> no, it's, it's no. When in the 60s, they decided they were wrong about everything. And then became so confident in that that they decided to make the world believe that too. That's that's the issue. Yeah, there. Would, I mean, I I don't really think I could do this episode because I'd probably just like weep through most of it. But the the downfall of the Yankees is is really something to observe. But so there's the, they've got ideological. They've got he's got he's got a theological component. The other component, the means by which a certain understanding of America and of God and of your fellow man will be transmitted is through specific materials. These will be most famously in modern America and now really revived in a big way, uh, some of them by homeschoolers, are things like Webster's Dictionary, uh, McGuffey's Eclectic Readers, Noah Webster's Blue Book Speller, and other similar collections, some made by man, some not, man, M-A-N-N in this case, they're all made by M-A-N. I was going to say, like what, dogs, yeah. cats, or God? <laughs> yeah, no, some, came, to, some came from God, like the Book of Mormon. <laughs> um, another, another Yankee 19th century product. But, Fair enough. But these things, these things will be then given to all Americans who attend a public or common school. So 
if you are an Irish kid in Philadelphia in the 1850s, you're going to be reading about, quote, our Puritan fathers. If you are a kid in rural Alabama in 1920, you will read about our Puritan fathers. You will get a certain telling of American history, and that will occur largely through the stuff that's going to teach you how to read and spell. So what you're going to offer to people are specific tasks. And I think that attention to quality in practical instruction is why you begin to get things like teacher training institutions, eventually called normal schools, eventually called teachers colleges after that. But you're going to get institutions that are going to ensure and largely eventually be overseen and then later accredited by state educational authorities to make sure that we are as good as possible at getting people to read, to write, and to cipher or to count well. And we're going to do that because it's valuable to the republic, okay, to have people who can do those things. And it's valuable to those people and to the republic, not just the state, but the republic. It's a very nationalistic understanding of education. It's valuable to the Republic that we have a common understanding of what it means to be American and the common or public school is what's going to ensure that that occurs. So I remember learning about the Puritan fathers in grade school in the eighties. That was part of the curriculum at the Lutheran school I was at. And it definitely was part of this train then that had conglomerated as a package over time mm -hmm. into the identity that I was sold and, and I bought because Nintendo was cool and cable TV worked. When did this become compulsory? It becomes compulsory where and when there is some kind of existential threat to its dominance. And so compulsory laws, compulsory education laws, or mandates about curriculum, such as no school, private or public, can teach in a language other than English. Or in Oregon in 1922, public education specifically is compulsory. Uh, that actually gets struck down in a very famous case in 1926 called Pierce versus Society of Sisters. Those ideas are always going to be a result of some threat to the predominance and the and the dominance of public education. So it's monopoly. Yeah. And this is why the notion that public education is the closest we've ever come or do come to having a state church is because the 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 fact of indoctrination is not really something you can avoid in schooling of any kind. The child will be somehow indoctrinated. That's not really a bad word per se. I mean, it means taught. Yeah. The, the child right. will be taught. Yeah, yeah. I'm indoctrinated school. concerning how to operate a motor vehicle or whatever, right? Yeah. Like you could, Sharpen you could your awkwardly don't poke say your that. Eye out, kid. It's really important that we indoctrinate you. Otherwise, you might just you know, right. have one eye. Yeah. Don't touch a hot stove. So that's all indoctrination. The issue is really about with what will you be indoctrinated? And the existential threat that's posed eventually is largely going to be framed in terms of Catholic schools. Although in the case of the uh, big decision in 1920, Meyer v. Nebraska, it's Lutheran schools. And the issue is that private schooling of any kind, uh, much less homeschooling, which is going to, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, largely disappear for a while those non-public forms of school, there are going to be a lot of arguments against them. But what you can see in a very basic way is that they are a problem for any idea that we're going to end up with having a lot in common, which is the original vision, hmm. not only of colonial New England, but also of the notion of having a school system for which you must, if you're an income earning adult, somehow pay, even if you don't have children or if the children you do have do not attend that system, that there's some sort about, of like, state public taxes good and local in taxes, state and local taxes. And back in the looking at this as religion, it mm -hmm. is tremendous how much a percentage of any locality is given over to the education system. I mean, it is it is what we exist for, it would seem. Right. Yeah, right. And I think that those those instances of pressure. So Oregon is a state that when it passes its compulsory education law in 1922, I believe, struck down in 26, off the top of my head. When it passes it, the, the, the population of Oregon is 13% immigrant. I, I don't even think the United States, at least officially today, is even 13% foreign born. 
or you're going to get arguments in Midwestern states during the First World War about instruction in English because you have such an enormous, especially Lutheran, um, German-speaking population. The issues there are that if you don't go to the public school, you will not end up being an American. And so the second Ku Klux Klan, which is not really at all the same thing as the first one or the one such as it exists today, I guess. The second Ku Klux Klan is totally in favor of compulsory education, compulsory public education, not just compulsory education, which is behind like truancy laws. That's not that interesting, I guess. Compulsory public education, the reason they're in favor of it is because if a kid is born of Italian parents and goes to Catholic schools his whole life, he doesn't even, he doesn't even, I mean, it's not just that he could be schooled in Italian, right? It, that's a big part of it. But it's also that he doesn't have to know or have anything in common with or have much social contact with non-Italian Catholics. So the, the issue is that we cannot actually have a republic without having something in common. And although I don't really favor public education in its original vision or its current articulation, there is a logical validity to that point. That is, if we don't have a common story or ethos, it, it will be pretty hard to get along in the ways that certainly in modern America, but even in 1920s America, we're expected to get along. Well, of course, fascism makes sense. I mean, that's why people try it so often. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I don't I don't I don't think the issue here is like fascism. It's not really a it's not in any sense like a statist no, no. But what, what I'm getting at is that, I mean, you need to have everyone line up in the same direction and fascism just realizes the easiest way is at a, a point of a gun, like make them all line up. There you go. It's done. But you got to get them in order somehow. And that convincing of it, the the, the pushing of them into that unified slot, yeah. um, I, I, I think it ends up being fascism at the end of the day because humans are irascible and won't go into the box that the bigger group always wants them to fit into. Yeah. So let me... And I know we're getting near the end of the hour here. No, we got a good 15 minutes. Yeah. So I'll, 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 I'll throw this up for discussion is that there is a vast difference even once public schooling is normal in all regions of the United States, which is really very much a post reconstruction that is post 1870s reality. Even once that happens, the way that it happens varies widely according to locality and region. And I would say that the idea of compulsory education, compulsory public education, the reason that these kinds of laws get passed really exclusively in Northern states is because there is an idea that if the immigrant is white, he can be integrated. And the articulation of this, like in the Pierce and Pierce v. Society of Sisters was the Democratic governor of Oregon at the time. And he said that, you know, a child will go into the public school as a little Pole or a little Finn or a little Italian, and he will come out of public schooling as a full-fledged American, right? The assumption there is that there is something that is American. It's probably non-specifically Protestant. It's probably largely Yankee, but definitely British descended. That's American. And the way that you, you're either born that way and then you're schooled in that way, our Puritan fathers, literally, <laughs> or you're schooled in that way, not born that way, but they become your Puritan fathers. The idea is of integration. Something to notice is that public education never catches on as much where the population is not in favor of integration for any variety of reasons. So two examples would be places with lots of Lutherans or Catholics. They just don't care. They don't want to participate. Okay. So they're doing de facto segregation, not along racial lines, but along religious lines and, and probably also ethnic lines. Segregation also occurs in the South, de jure or de facto. And the idea there is there's a totally different vision of what a, a public school in that, in that case, or a school in the case of religious groups exists to propagate a certain way of life. A public school in, I think, the Yankee version, which is going to increasingly over time become the American version, a school exists to make the entirety of the population, which must support it financially, into something, some 
common vision, some common understanding. That's going to get severely dumbed down if you compare textbooks from the 1920s to the 2020s. It's going to get a lot less complex. We're going to expect a lot less of people that graduate from high school. Nonetheless, the vision that we're all trying to integrate into one thing, I think is going to be the predominant vision, whereas the idea that we're going to be comfortable being separate along any number of lines or for any number of reasons is generally over time going to lose in the United States for reasons that I think have to do with the growth of centralization. But right, what's well, going to be is being one thing is going to matter more than being literate. And we made that decision yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, no, that's a, that's a really good succinct way to say that. So on, on a practical note, you know, you're going to, the books that say our Puritan fathers from like 1897, if you look at what the kid is asked to learn about, like the, you know, the physical geography of South America or, <laughs> or, um, you know, battles in the revolution, it's kind of amazing. Right. And I think that's partly why a lot of these books, actually, you can get them in new printings because homeschoolers who are a very interesting set of people in American educational history, homeschoolers have realized that standards used to be a lot higher, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I have a first printing of Webster's Dictionary printed afresh, you know, two years ago, first edition, new printing. But what you're dealing with is that standards are going to slip really seriously over time for everybody, for absolutely everybody. And part of that is because public schooling is going to change from a focus on integration, I think, into a common American vision, which you, you still get, especially if your parents or grandparents uh, grew up speak, speaking a language other than English at home. You're going to get that in the sense that they probably didn't speak. Whatever they grew up speaking, they, they, they spoke English to their children. That that idea of integration is going to evaporate by the mid-1960s. And there is a really big change in the 60s going into the 70s in the idea of both how much control the federal government has over education and what it is exercising that control for. The existence of the Department of Education, which is dates from the mid to late 1970s, is not quite as important as an act passed in 1965 called the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, because President Johnson's, uh, Lyndon Johnson's reasons for passing that act, and also the time period in which it's set around the time of the Civil Rights Act, which has a similar rationale and lots of other legislation, is that the real problem America has is not that we all need to, you know, aspire to a common vision of how much math we should know or or what we should understand about American history. That's going to endure to some degree, but that the real problem in American education is that outcomes are not equal. So you can see how this is very similar to a lot of the legislation and political rhetoric of the mid and late 1960s, that the real problem we have is that we're not, we're not, actu we're not actually all the same. So this is kind of Christopher Caldwell's central contention in Age of Entitlement is that America is no longer a place since the 60s about equality of opportunity. Not really. It's really about equality of outcome. And lots of programs and official and unofficial things are designed to ensure that. And so what's going to happen is that the federal government, as its office or bureau of education, uh, something existing since the 1860s, but but never at a widespread level, often just providing things like plans for building efficient schoolhouses. As that morphs into the Department of Education in the 1970s, it's going to see its role more and more and more as ensuring equality of outcomes. And that's going to mean that public schooling is going to be a place where we ensure that you and I end up the same as much as possible not that you and I have been instructed necessarily in the same things. And I think, so, I think yeah. that I can say that it's achieved that for those whose ethnic immigration pattern happened prior to the 1960s. So if you're an ethnicity that was in prior to the 60s, you did get Americanized. Um, yeah, and then it's right. those who are coming in after who you see as the special interest groups are rising, uh, pushing right. the other direction. Oh, if I can try to remember this other thought. Oh, 
the the boogaboo in the narrative that seems to be missing to me still is yeah. the educational phenomena of talking pictures and the counter narrative of California that kind of comes back. Silicon Valley eventually bec- becomes part of this, but yeah. that television is an education machine, brainwashing machine. Right. And just to step back and look at the integration of California technology with American school systems as the religious fight between uh, the religion of the West Coast and the East, really. And you know this can tie into other things with the COVID year, politically speaking, as mm-hmm. these two power centers and economic centers battle for control of the, the hegemonic global economy, blah, 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 blah. Um, but to see it as a religion and that, you know, the iPad in the classroom is the one religion realizing the official fiscal power of the other religion <laughs> and, and getting in bed with it to take it over, I would say, yeah. uh, while the other religion is sort of like running out of gas, right? It's, it's a fascist dream in need of a mission and, uh, maybe finding one in California. I don't know. God help us. I think, well, I think, I think that the desire for compulsory public education for all American children maybe beginning in pre-K somehow at this point. And this the spread and the extent of schooling from originally however long it takes you, as assessed by extremely local authorities, probably just your parents, to you have to go through eighth grade, to you have to go until you're 18, to whatever it is. The the purpose of that is is always about a certain degree of passivity. You're you're passive under the control of your parents or you're passive under the control of the local authorities or the congregation um, in the case of a lot of private schooling, you're passive at this point under federal mandates. Yeah. Stable. And I think something to notice about the systems is that even as the systems continue to exist, they have relatively less power than they used to. So power that, that state systems still have are for instance, especially large states like Texas and California are over what gets printed in their textbooks, right? So when you get debates about what is taught in a state like evolution in Kansas or something like that, you're, you're seeing that states do still have real power. They have a lot less power than they did in the 1970s because grants and lots of other things coming down from on high from the federal government are going to really affect in addition to how many kids you have in your state. So Wyoming, nobody cares what Wyoming wants in a textbook. There are still ways in which even local authorities have control and power that is somewhat unusual in American government because the system was set up with the idea that local school boards have some amount of control and power and authority. There are other ways in which a lot of this is still in flux because in, a, in, in order to measure outcomes, eventually we're going to get standardized curricula. That's common core eventually. And that's also no child left behind in the Bush administration. So this is not really a Republican Democrat difference exactly, but we're going to get common curricula and standardized testing of all kinds so that we can measure a quality of outcome and then engineer it as much as possible. The exceptions to things like this, and I, I note this a lot because, you know, my wife is from, grew up in Minnesota. She has this certain pride and knowledge of Minnesota that is comparable, in my experience, only to Texas. Uh, part of that is because if you look at the state-mandated curricula, Texas and Minnesota mandate that children in those states, um, and this will generally also be done in private schools in those states, know an unusually large amount about the history and geography and lots of other things of their state. And that creates a sense of being from that place that kids in, you know, Kansas and, you know, Florida don't necessarily have. So there, there are levels of power. It's very similar to the variegated nature of government that we talked about a lot, especially last year. But the overarching story is not only of common or public schools as a place where we get a common or public understanding of things. It's increasingly common or public schools as the place where we receive not necessarily any kind of thorough indoctrination anymore, but definitely a thorough form of control and that we become accustomed to control because the form of the public school in 1891 is with very few and really only urban exceptions, a one-room school, largely ungraded, maybe divided by you're good at spelling versus you're not yet good at spelling, 
and you know the teacher and your dad and a couple other dads can kick the teacher out if they want to, or they can keep him forever. That's precarious for the teacher, but it's pretty good for your dads. So that's really, really different from, uh, especially where you grew up, which is California, Texas, Florida are kind of unusual and have these absolutely massive high schools. You go to this place, you don't, you don't really know anybody. It's almost like living inside the bureaucracy of your state already when you're 14 years old. You know, that makes sense. And if someone had told me that, I think I would have had a much better time. Instead, what I got was stay in line, stay a boy, don't ask questions, trust yeah. us, it'll turn out when <laughs> right. you grow up, right? right. And that's yeah. why we're talking about the history of miseducation. This is episode one, A Brief History of Power, with two white guys. You know where to find us or we wouldn't be here. And I know you're disappointed, but you're going to have to wait a week for the next hour. <laughs> 